All right, good to see you guys all here again. And uh, yeah, I was a little disappointed. I mean, we have a little bit of a blizzard, but that's really not much. Uh, on Friday, uh, um, now some of you maybe risked your lives to come here. I shouldn't make light of that. But on Friday, when that south wind blew in a bit, some of the people on staff were like, oh, it's an answer to prayer, you know, for the church renewal guys coming in a little bit warmer. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I wanted them to experience the real deal. Like, you're going to come to Manitoba? <laughs> That's, I wanted them to get minus 40. Like, they're getting chipped. They're missing out. But anyway, so too bad. But uh, uh, if they want to stay longer, I know they're not in this service anyway, but I invited them last time. Just stay around for a week and you'll, and you'll get it yet. But uh, uh, you'll remember back, um, kind of way back, November, December, I started a series on, called Seven on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. First three chapters, Revelation chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And then of course we took a break over Christmas and then of course uh, God just uh, you know, kind of hijacked our agenda. And this month we just had this awesome month of prayer and fasting and we preached a bunch of messages on that. Uh, but today I want to get back into that series. And so I don't have lots of time today to catch everybody up with where we were. If you're new here, you can go back and listen to the messages for free online. But we're up to chapter two. And today we're dealing with the letter to the church at Ephesus. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to, de- we're going to look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. And I think God's got big things for us. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, this is, this is all about you. And these letters to the churches are an absolute treasure to us. As you speak directly to local churches, uh, Jesus, in red letters, just like in the Gospels. And I pray that you would impact us by your Spirit I pray that you would transform us as a church. I pray that you would give us a tremendous love for Jesus and that we would have tremendous hope for a a deeper walk with you through this message. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and we actually talked about the whole angel thing about a month ago there. This is not written to an angel, but I don't have time to get into that. It's to people, right? But to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, it, before we get to the rest of this letter, I have to give you a little bit of history and background of the church in Ephesus because it makes the, the, the letter just comes more alive. When you understand who this church is and what they were like, what Jesus is going to say to them is going to make a lot more sense. And so I want to just take a, a, a little bit of time here to be in this message to give you a little bit of history. We're going to go back in, into the book of Acts because the church in Ephesus is talked about and referred to a lot in the Bible, okay? It was probably the third most, in the first century AD, it was probably the third most or one of the top three most influential, most important churches in the world, right up there with the church in Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. Uh, this is a, a huge missionary sending church. I mean, the book of Ephesians, Paul's, a whole book there uh, in Paul's epistles, the book of Ephesians was written to this church. And uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, we have three chapters that tell us the story of how the church at Ephesus got started and what it was like in the beginning. And I'm actually going to go back there because when you see a little bit about what this church was like, again, the letter to the, to the, the letter in Revelation is going to make a lot more sense. It's going to come a lot more alive, okay? So we're going to go back to the book of Acts for just a bit here. Acts chapter 19, and I wanted to read you a little bit of the background of how this church started. Verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And I just, you know, as I was getting ready for this message, um, I just, prayerfully, I just had to stop here for just a moment because I think a lot of Christians today are right where these guys were at. We have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul gets there, and there's some believers there, but they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Have you heard about the Holy Spirit? We haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a lot of Christians today in our country that have not heard about the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by that I don't mean that they haven't heard the words Holy and Spirit. Okay, they, we've technically, as Christians here in Canada, we've technically, we've heard of this concept known as the Holy Spirit. We know it, we have a theoretical concept in our mind of the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we have a, it's not that we haven't heard of the Holy Spirit technically or theoretically in our heads, the theology and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But if you would talk to most Christians in our country today and you would ask them questions like, when's the last time the Holy Spirit spoke to you? Uh, uh, spoke to me? When's the last time you were praying and fasting and seeking God about some big mountain in your life and the Holy Spirit did a miracle in your life, did a huge miracle and moved a mountain and answered your prayer and that was so exciting. And it's, uh, miracles in my life? 
Are we supposed to have those? When, when's the last time the Holy Spirit spoke something into your heart and you stepped out and you took a risk? You told someone about, some, you, you told someone about Jesus that was a little bit scary, you were a little afraid how it would turn out, but you told someone about Jesus, you took a step of faith, kingdom venture, God called you to something, like adventure with God, any of those sorts of things, like actual communion, actual relationship, not just the Holy Spirit, a theoretical idea on a page, but when's the last time you actually had an experience with him where he did something in your life or you stepped out for him or he spoke to you or he, he delivered you of some bondage, when's the last time you had an experience of that sort? And I'm not elevating, you know, here charismatic experiences. I'm talking about where the Holy Spirit is real in your life and does something in your life and speaks to you and guides you. When's the last time you had one of those? And many Christians in North America, America today, silent on that front. We know of the Holy Spirit as a theoretical concept. We know about the Holy Spirit as a couple of words on a page But the fact of the matter is that many Christians today in our culture have never actually heard of the Holy Spirit as a real person. An experience of the Holy Spirit as a real relationship. You know, in evangelical churches today, we talk so much about relationship with God. I mean, any Christian in evangelical church, if they talk about, you know, God, and and if they talk to someone who who isn't a Christian, what do we always say? We always say, uh, you know, God wants to have a relationship with you. God wants to have a relationship with you. And we use that terminology, relationship with God, so much that it's become just a cliche because we use it over and over and over again. God wants to have a relationship with you. And the fact of the matter is, many of us who are talking about having a relationship with God haven't heard from God in months, years, some, in some cases never. What kind of a relationship with that is that if you never hear from him? What kind of relationship with that is, is, is that if you've never had an answer to prayer? And so I think that in many ways, many Christians in our culture are pretty much right where the Ephesians were there at the beginning. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, look at that. When the Holy Spirit actually comes on a place, comes on a group of people, on a church, real stuff happens. And you want to know why real stuff happens when the Holy Spirit comes on a body of believers? Because the Holy Spirit is a real person. It's not a theoretical concept. I theoretically have this theoretical person inside of me called the Holy Spirit. He's a real person, and there's real results when he comes into a body, when he comes into your life, into a church body or into your personal life. Now, of course, we teach this. Uh, you know, we do not teach that the Holy Spirit always manifests himself the same way. We, we're not one of these places that teaches, you know, that every time the Holy Spirit comes on someone, they get, speak in tongues and all that sort of stuff. Not at all. But what we see is when the Holy Spirit comes in a place, there's real results. And we shouldn't be surprised that one of those results is prophecy because essentially prophecy just boils down to hearing God's voice. And we shouldn't be surprised if the Holy Spirit is a real person, that if he actually comes into a real relationship with people, if he actually comes into a place, that people would actually start to really hear him speak to them. So we have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me pray for you. The Holy Spirit comes in, and immediately there is an actual stuff begins to happen. And so let's look now at at what happens next, some of the fruit of this. Verse 7, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and speaking of Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what they called Christianity at the beginning, they called it the way, uh, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All, think about that. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit, this is not people playing church. This is not we come to church every week because we have, you know, we like to listen to good teaching and there's some good music there and we have a nice warm building and so we just get together and we can hold our, you know, and read our Bibles and listen to some teaching and we go out. That's not what this church was. The Holy Spirit is a real person. He came into this place in two years. They spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman province of Asia. Now I want you to think about how hard that would have been back in those days. 
Because this is not, this is before the time of the internet, okay? At least by a few decades, all right? Okay, they could not just put the gospel on the website and that's how it got across. They couldn't just post the gospel on Facebook and it went viral throughout the province of Asia. Okay, they couldn't even, they, it's not, they couldn't even print out tracts and mail them out to everybody. And these are all wonderful tools, by the way. Now in, in modern times, we have you know, these tools we should take advantage of to spread the gospel, but they didn't have any of these tools. They didn't have mass crusades. In two years, they spread, this church, under the leadership of Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, spread the gospel around the entire province of Asia by foot. Okay, that's not playing church. When the Holy Spirit comes into place, he is a real person. He has a burning passion for Jesus, and he has a burning desire to reach the lost. And if you spend any time with him, and he's not just a theoretical concept to you somewhere in your brain, but if you actually, he's a real person to you, and you walk with him and talk with him and take risks for him and listen to him, and, and he moves mountains in your life, you, that passion for the lost and for Jesus is going to rub off on you. And these people will have sacrificed tremendously to spread the gospel that far in that big a way by foot in two years. Absolutely huge. But that is just what the Holy Spirit does. I heard of a person this, this week, teacher, and this person, is so, I mean, when you talk to them about God, their eyes get a little watery. You know those people, their, their walk with the Lord is so fresh. Not that everybody has that kind of a personality. And, but, but, where, but where they're just so soft to the Lord that you talk about them, you talk about God with these people, he's so fresh to them, and they, they get a little emotional sometimes. And this, this person's a teacher, and they can't help but share Jesus with their students. They sometimes choke up when they're sharing Jesus with their students, and they just can't stop. And we know of many, many students in this area who have been hugely impacted by this one person. And I'll tell you what that is. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit, now is it always going to look the same? Does anyone, everyone have the same gift? Is it always going to be in the same place in the same way? No. But when, but when you have a relationship with the real person who is the Holy Spirit, he's going to impact your life. You're going to begin to have a hunger and a desire to share Jesus with the lost people in your life. life. You're just going to want to talk about Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's huge. And that's what happened here at Ephesus when this church got planted. And the thing you have to realize is Ephesus was also a dangerous place to be a Christian. Okay? So they spread the gospel in two years through Asia on foot, and they were on fire, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you have to understand is this, this Ephesus, this, this, and this just, again, this is going to make the letter in Revelation 2 make, make even more sense when we go there. But this Ephesus, this area, this province of Asia, was very hostile to Christianity. So they were doing this spreading of the gospel. They were doing this church thing and meeting with Jesus in an environment that was very against Christianity and against Jesus. And this pops up a few times in the, in the scriptures. I'm just going to show you a couple places. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul refers to some of the pain that he has suffered personally in Ephesus. He says this uh, to the Corinthian church, speaking of Ephesus, he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And he's referring there to the, to the uh, practice in some cities in the Roman Empire. They, would have, they had these big stadiums, and, uh, and, note, and this, you know, there's been some movies about this and stuff in popular culture recently, and so a lot of people are familiar with this now, but they, had, they would have these stadiums, they would have these gladiator contests, and one of the things that they would do in some of these cities is they would put Christians into the ring, and they would uh, release wild beasts onto the Christians to let them be torn apart and stuff in front of people. So this is not a politically correct place to be a Christian, okay? And Paul refers to it here, and, and nobody's quite sure, there's no other information about this outside of this passage, but either, I mean, for sure some Christians at Ephesus were thrown to the wild beasts in Ephesus like this. That's how hostile it was there. And it looks here like even Paul himself, now somehow he got out. Okay, so I don't know what that looked like. I'd love to see the movie when we get to heaven. Um, here's Paul fighting the wild beasts, however that worked. But whatever the case, these Christians were under intense, okay? It was not politically correct. They weren't spreading the gospel of Jesus in a place where everybody just loved the gospel and it's totally cool to share about Jesus at work. No, no, this was a politically incorrect place to talk about Jesus. Very hostile. We see it in Acts chapter 19. I want to go there. Acts 19 again. 
And there's a big riot in the city of Ephesus over Christianity because, when the, because the Christians are actually putting the idol makers out of business. I want to show you this. Because again, it's, it just gives you a little bit of context. When we go back to Revelation 2, you're going to understand what Jesus is saying to this church a little better, all right? But if we go back to Acts 19, verse, starting in verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen, okay? And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now we just stop there for just a moment. Imagine this kind of impact, okay? Imagine if here in Manitoba, they had to have a big convention at the convention center in Winnipeg and all the divorce lawyers were there and all the casino owners and all the drug dealers and anybody having anything to do with abortion, they were all there and they're saying, you know what, we got to do something about these Southland people. They're driving us out of business. They're winning so many people to Jesus. These people are crazy. We're losing money. Can you imagine? That's the impact. This is not a nice church. Ephesus is not a nice church. If they would have been alive today, the local newspapers would have hated them. Some of the local business people would have hated them because they weren't a nice church. The devil isn't scared of nice churches where all they do is come and listen to teaching. The devil is scared of churches that are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're actually forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. And this church was so filled with the Holy Spirit, they were going everywhere. These guys are going out of business because they're winning so many people to Jesus. And so they have a get-together. And uh, verse 27 we continue here, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions of travel. And I'm not going to finish that story now, but you, you, you get a little picture here of the backdrop. Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. And so this is, this is a church. Uh, we look, and this, all of this stuff here in Acts we're reading about is happening somewhere in the 50s A.D., about 20 years after Jesus died on the cross and went back to heaven, okay? And, and so this church starts off with a bang. The Holy Spirit comes to these places. These people fully give their lives to Jesus and they expend their lives in service to the kingdom, advancing the gospel in, a, in, a, in an environment of, of tremendous persecution and hostility. This was a great church. A great church. All right, so let's go to Revelation 2 now. And we're gonna see Jesus has some commendations for this church. He also has a very serious warning, which we'll finish with. But let's go to Revelation 2 now. Okay, back to verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right, this is now Jesus 40 years later, not 4, but 4 times 10, but 40 years later, uh, after this church was started, the things we read about in Acts, now it's in the 90s AD, about 40 years later, and Jesus is writing this letter to the church now. Okay, so to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Jesus starts by commending them. Okay, I know your works. I saw you spread, I've seen you spread the gospel all over the, the, the empire throughout your entire province by foot. I've seen your work and your toil and your patient endurance. Jesus says, I see that. And, and this should actually be an encouragement to us. Many of us, you know, growing up, your mom would tell you as a threat if you grew up in a Christian home, right? Jesus sees what you're doing, right? And it was, it was a threat, right? It was... He sees the bad stuff you think you're doing in secret, right? And that's true. He sees the bad stuff. But many of us Christians, when we think about Jesus seeing everything we do, we only think about the bad stuff. But this is the encouragement of this passage. Jesus doesn't just see you when you're doing bad stuff. He sees your every feeble attempt to please him. And he saw you, many of you, this prayer and fasting month on your knees going without food for days on end as you sought God to do big things in your family to win lost people to Christ, to move big mountains in your life. Jesus saw that. I saw your work and your toil and your patient endurance, and he commends you. He sees that there's a reward for you. 
You know, the Christian life, I mean, I, you read this, this line here. You read about this Ephesian church, now you see Jesus commending them for the work, the toil, and the patient endurance. You know, the Christian life is not supposed to be a vacation. A lot of Christians have this idea, I just got saved, it's supposed to be, now I just go to church, and Jesus makes my life better. The Christian life is not supposed to be a vacation. The Christian life is, I get into a relationship with, with Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, a real relationship with a real person. He fills me so full of love and joy that I now go out and I sacrifice everything for him. Jesus says, I saw your work and your toil and your patient endurance. Nice churches don't work or toil for the kingdom. They only do what's convenient for them. But this church, Jesus says, I commend you for your work and your toil and your patient endurance. And then he goes on. And he says another thing that he commends them for, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. And he goes, in, and again, he commends them for enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But now Jesus adds this other stuff, okay? So in addition to work and toil and enduring, he says, and I also want to commend you because you have tested those. There are those who call themselves leaders in the church. There are those who call themselves apostles, and they are teaching false things, and I want to commend you because you have, you have rejected that. You have not gone along with that. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested that false teaching, and you have rejected it, okay? Now, here's what I find so interesting about this passage. We read this passage about you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you found them to be false. And we read this here in North America, and we have almost no conviction. Most people have no conviction. We read this passage, and basically what we just think is, yeah, way to go, you know, Ephesians, way to not listen to the false teachers. And there's like this hidden assumption in us, but there's no examination. Am I looking, am I listening to any false teachers? Are we following any false teachers here in North America in, in our Christianity, in our Christian culture? There's no thought of that. It's just, way to go, Ephesians. You didn't follow the false teachers. And the assumption is, and of course, we wouldn't follow any false teachers. And the reason we have that assumption is because we think that false teachers are obvious. We think that obviously, well, good that the Ephesians didn't follow the false teachers and we wouldn't either. And so you ask a Christian, what's a false teacher? Well, <laughs> you know, anyone that tells you not to follow Jesus. Well, amen, that's true. Anybody that tells you to follow someone other than Jesus for your salvation, that's a false teacher. But that's not the only kind of false teacher. Those are the obvious ones. Nobody, oh, I shouldn't say nobody these days. Some people do follow them too. But most people here, most people who go to church regularly don't, aren't tempted to follow a false teacher that says don't follow Jesus. That's not the kind. And yet in the New Testament, we find over and over and over again, starting right at the beginning in Matthew, in the Gospels, with Jesus, then throughout Paul's letters, James, Hebrews, First and Second Peter, uh, Jude, Revelation, we find over and over and over again, we find warnings about false teachers. And the New Testament gives us a few different strains, okay? A few different strains of false teaching, and I can't get into all of those right now, not time. I just want to talk about, about one, because it's the one that ties to the Ephesian church here. One kind of false teaching. And actually, before I even do that, um, when I talk about false teaching here, we just have to do an aside, because I need to make sure that you, you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. When I talk about false teachers in the church, I'm not talking about people who disagree with, you know, a false teacher is anyone who, who disagrees with Chris. I mean, that, that's pretty close, but it's not totally bang on, okay? <laughs> no. That's not at all what I'm talking about. When we talk about false teachers, we're not talking about differences in doctrine. We're not talking, you know, one guy's a Calvinist, one guy's not a Calvinist, one of them's a false teacher. No. You know, you, you believe in Calvinism or something like that? Well, you're different than us, but that, that doesn't, believing Calvinism does not make you a false teacher. I'm not talking about someone believes something different about the end times than we do here at Southland. That's not a false teacher. That's a difference in doctrine. Every, nobody's perfect in their doctrine. I am not perfect in my doctrine. This church, we are not perfect in our doctrine. Every Christian will be a little bit off somewhere in doctrine. We're going to find out Jesus is going to come back and we're going to go, oh, totally wrong about that. You guys are right. Oh, but we had you on these two. But, <laughs> but, you know, there's disagreements of doctrine. There's different doctrine, and those doctrines are important. Like, it's, it's still important. I'm not saying it's not important. It is important once you believe about things, and believing wrong doctrine will have, have impact on your life negatively, but that's not false teaching. 
False teaching is something far more sinister. And like I said, the New Testament reveals a few different strains of what is false teaching. Not just wrong doctrine or disagreement of doctrine, but it, it, it outlines a couple of things that what the New Testament would call doctrines of demons or false teaching, okay? And, and this is throughout. And one of the main ones, and this is the one that, the, that Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus for, for rejecting, but it is, a, it is a form of false doctrine, or it's a false teaching. It's not just a wrong teaching. It is a false teaching that is hugely alive and well in the church today. I can take you to any Christian bookstore, and I can show you some of the top 10 books that are selling to Christians in the name of Jesus by people who are using the name of Jesus are exactly from this strain of false teaching. And it's a kind of false teaching. If you want to read how much the Bible preaches against this kind of false teaching, the entire book of Jude is about this kind of false teaching. And I don't have time to get into that, but that's your, you, you can have a homework assignment if you've got a pen and paper right now. Read the entire book of Jude this, this week, okay? Some of you are going, oh man, the entire book of Jude. It's one page. Okay, it's like the shortest. I didn't just tell you to read the whole book of Psalms or something like that, okay? It's one page. And it's all about this. First and second Peter. You want to read some more about this kind of false teaching? First and second Peter. Book of James. Book of Hebrews. All of them nail this one strain of false teaching. Not wrong doctrine, false teaching. And it's what I and, and a number of others today would call hyper-grace teaching. Okay, and I'm going to show you this. This is what the Ephesians were rejecting. We'll show you this in just a moment. We're going to go ahead three verses. Okay? Hyper-grace teaching. What is hyper-grace teaching? I'll tell you what hyper-grace teaching is, and it is alive and well. Hyper-grace teaching is selling more CDs, DVDs, and books in the Christian world right now than almost anything else. Okay? And it's people who are using the name of Jesus, talking about the cross of Jesus, talking about forgiveness of sins. You say, they're on our team! It's not our team when it's false teaching that leads people away. I'll tell you what hypergrace teaching is. Hypergrace teaching is teaching that teaches a distorted view of grace that encourages Christians to be comfortable in sin. Hypergrace teaching is a distorted teaching of grace that teaches Christians that they do not have to repent of sin, they do not have to confess sins because Jesus forgave them of all their sins in the future and those sins are already gone even before they do them. So there's no, there's no need for godly sorrow, there's no need for humbling, getting on one's knees and crying out to God and repenting and turning or any of that. No need for any of that because hyper-grace teaches such a distorted view of grace that the holiness of God and judgment and all those sorts of things are out because since the cross, Jesus only feels sugar sweetness, mercy, and goodness in his heart at all times. That's hyper-grace teaching. And the, and the Ephesians rejected it. I'm going to show you this. If we go ahead, three verses, okay? Three verses. Verse 6. Yet this you have, Jesus says to them, you hate. I want you to notice. You hate. You don't dislike. You don't, well, I, you know, I kind of like this teaching because there's some good aspects of it. So I kind of just try to spit out the bones. No, no. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And I don't have tons of time to develop the Nicolaitans. They're going to pop up in another message in a couple of weeks because they pop up in the letter to the church of Pergamum as well. But you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, just again, and we'll, we'll hit them again in a couple of weeks. But the Nicolaitans were one sect of the hyper-grace teachers, okay? And they, they are false teachers. They, but did they teach people to, follow, to not follow Jesus? No. They told people, follow Jesus. They told people, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. They told people, Jesus wants to forgive your sins. And you go, ha, huh, it's all good. But then they also came along and told people a form of grace that kept Christians from repenting. And they taught a form of grace that kept Christians from being in awe of the holiness of God that says that it's that a, a big part of the Christian life. Yes, we do we need grace. We all sin many, 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 many times. And I'm going to mess up many, many, many more times in my life. And yes, grace, true grace, all oh, that Jesus forgives me every single time when I turn to him and repent. But a big part of the Christian walk is as I repent, Jesus, I am praying and fasting. I am getting accountability in my life. I am praying and coming after you because I want to be holy. It's not this effortless thing that you're already automatically holy even when you're right in the middle of looking at porn or cutting someone down with gossip that God somehow magically sees you as holy. No, he doesn't. He's not blind. He sees you sinning against him and he's holy. And he says, you need to feel sorry and you need to repent. And if you do repent, I am happy to forgive you a thousand times. 
But you need to have in your life a desire and a striving for holiness. And the Nicolaitans were not teaching this. And in that society, in Roman society at that time, there was huge pressure, huge pressure on the Christians to, to participate in idolatrous feasts and pagan ceremonies and sexual immorality. Huge pressure. I mean, there were certain trades. For example, you might be a shipbuilder. And so your, your money, you made money off of designing ships or building ships or whatever. Well, you would have to be part of, you know, sort of like, a, not really a union, but that's sort of an idea, kind of a trade guild. And that trade guild would be all the ship, and if you wanted to get work in that area, they would have, and then every couple of months or whatever, they would have these meetings, and they would have pagan ceremonies, and they would have different things like this. Or you could be in some other business. And, but in order to be in the business and to be making money and to be making your connections and to be allowed to work, you would have to participate in some of these things. So there was huge economic pressure, there was persecution pressure to compromise. To compromise the holiness of God and who he is and to say, well, uh, you know what? I love Jesus, but I just have to do a little bit of this just so I can keep my business going. I love Jesus, but I just have to do a bit of this or I'm going to get in trouble. And so there was this pressure. Well, into this pressure comes this hyper-grace teaching which says, God's already forgiven you of everything you're ever going to do. You don't need to repent at all. It's already forgiven. Are you kidding me? It's already forgiven? It sounds so great. It's not great because you can't walk with a holy God with that kind of a mindset. And what it does is it knocks the feet out from under what Jesus wants. Jesus said to his disciples, fear God who can put your soul in hell rather than men who can persecute you. And the reason he said that is there's a time when we need to stand for holiness even though it's going to hurt. And Jesus does not comfort us by saying, hey, just give in. I see that it's hard. I see that it's hard. Give in so it's a little easier, and I still love you. I totally get it. That's not what he says. He says, when it's hard, remember, it's a lot worse if you're on my bad side. That's what he says in the Gospels. Fear God rather than man. It's the fear of God that it says throughout the book of Proverbs that keeps us from evil. And so there's a place for the love of God, there's a place for the fear of God, but in this kind of hyper-grace teaching, what it does is it takes out the fear of God, it takes out the holiness of God and the importance of holiness in, in daily living, and what it does then, and what happens to Christians, is they move into compromise. And anything that brings compromise to his bride, Jesus is very passionate about having a pure bride. He is very passionate about holiness because he is holy. He's very passionate about grace and mercy and loving us too. I love that because none of us can be holy just by, by actions of holiness. But he expects us to repent. He expects, expects us to go after holiness and to cherish holiness and righteousness and purity. And so Jesus says here about that kind of hyper-grace teaching, you hate it. He says, and I commend you Ephesians because you don't just dislike this teaching, you hate it. And I also hate it because he's a pure and holy God. And he's merciful, thank goodness, but it is not a mercy we can presume upon. It's not a mercy we presume upon. It's a mercy that comes in, in response to our confession and repentance and our desire to follow him. So those are the commendations. It's a great church. Work hard, toil for the gospel. They're not just taking a break. They're not just some nice Sunday morning church. They're doing it. They're enduring patiently. They've rejected this, you know, this compromise and a false teaching that leads Christians into compromise. But now we come, there is a serious warning, verses four and five. And Jesus says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and this, is, this, this we have to pay attention to. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. As I was meditating on this passage this week, just a great soberness came over me. A great soberness came over me because this is not a bad church. We're going to come to a couple of churches in these letters that are more towards what we would call bad. Okay, bad churches. But this is not a church you would have driven by on the highway and gone, that's a bad church. They spread the gospel through Asia two years on foot. Sacrifice for the gospel. Stood strong in the face of persecution. Resi rejected compromise. They were passionate about holy living. This is a great church. It's a great church. And Jesus says, but if you do not repent and do the things you did at first, you've lost your first love. 
And if you do not do it, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. He says, I'm going to walk out of here. That is, should be a, a sobering thought. For, for Canadian, North American, Western churches, we read this passage, we should not be going, okay? If these people, okay, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You might keep your building. You might keep your nifty programs, but I'm not going to be there. I'm going to remove the lampstand. I'm going to be out of there. That, that's actually a scary thought. That, I mean, and if Jesus is willing to do that to a church like this, I wonder how many churches are on the verge of that in our culture right now, how many churches that's already happened to. I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm just going to leave. You'll still have the building. You'll still have the programs. You'll still be having your nice services, but I won't be there. You're just playing a game. And you know, if a church that can do that, you know, as, again, as we read these passages so often, what I find myself, and I talk about myself here, I talk about all of us as a whole, we read these passages, there's no conviction, we just think, oh, those Ephesians. Come on. Leaving your first love, what were you thinking? I mean, you, why would you stop being passionate for Jesus? And we North Americans read this without any hint of conviction. We just keep reading. And we don't stop and think, Spread the gospel on foot through all the province of Asia. If the guy that does that has a love problem, what about the guy sitting in the pew doing nothing? This should be convicting to us. If the guy who's giving his all to spread the gospel, to give his life for Christ, to stand up against persecution, if Jesus says it's possible for him to have a, lo a love problem for Jesus, then I wonder about churches where people are doing Nothing for God, and where church, all church is, is just a once a week thing. I wonder if maybe there needs to be some self-examination here. Because if Jesus can say that about this church, he could say it about any church, and it's certainly something that we need to examine in ourselves. Now, the good news is there's hope in this. There's hope in this. Some people, I start to preach on this, and right away, whoa, toast. Because you're sitting there and you're going, well, I have no passion for Jesus. I have no passion for Jesus. This is Jesus' love to put this in the Bible for us as a warning. And the other thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus is not judging the Ephesian church on feelings. See, feelings, a lot of people, as soon as they hear about being passionate for Jesus, they just give up. I can't be passionate for Jesus, right? Some of you are sitting here right now. That's what you think. I can't be passionate for Jesus. I've never been passionate for Jesus, and I don't know how to get passionate for Jesus. Well, the thing is, feelings are such a complicated thing. Jesus is, Jesus is not telling them here to focus on their feelings and work up passionate feelings for him. Here's what I know about feelings, okay? First of all, they can come and go. I won't even talk about females there. That's just a totally different thing, okay? I don't even know why that came. It's not in the notes. I shouldn't even have said that. Okay? But feelings come and go. Now, if you're passionately following Jesus, you will have passionate feelings from him, for him often. But even then, you won't have them always. And if you don't have passion for Jesus, focusing on trying to get passionate feelings for Jesus just doesn't work. What we have to do, Jesus, I want you to notice here, he says, repent and do the things you did at first. What we need to do is repent. We need to do the things that we need to do to zealously pursue Jesus, and what we'll find is that the feelings will follow. Yes, when you are passionately following Jesus, you will often have feelings of passion. Not always, but you will often have them. But you don't get the feelings by focusing on the feelings. Does that make sense? Do the things you did at first. This church had started out totally in love with Jesus 40 years before, but here they are 40 years on. They still got the doctrine. They still got the desire for holiness. They still got the mission program but they're an empty shell when it comes to love. And Jesus says, I'll pull the lampstand away just based on that. You know why? Because when it comes down to it, that's what this is all about, passion for Jesus. He actually is the center of the universe. He made the entire universe. He made each one of us because he wants one thing, passionate love. All of eternity, we're going to spend passionately loving him, and it will be amazing. But it actually is all about him. And you can have it all together in your life and believe all the right doctrines. And if you don't have passionately lo passionate love for Jesus, Jesus says, you've missed the whole point. It's just an empty shell. He wants passionate love. And it's a game breaker for him. It's a deal breaker. 
And so this church had started out 40 years before at the height of love. They had fallen in love with him. And now 40 years later, the heart's gone. They've got the shell. And Jesus says, in human eyes, you look like an amazing church. But to me, if you don't, bring, if you don't get the heart back for me, it's, that's it. Because the whole point is to love me passionately. Everything else flows out of that. Evangelism and service and prayer and fasting flows out of, if you passionately love me, those things will flow out of that. Go back and do the things you did at first. Those of you who are, who are married here today, um, you, know, you remember back to when you were, you were dating uh, you, your spouse. And, w- and when you're dating, you do all kinds of things. Many of them are actually dumb. <laughs> because, but you're in pursuit, right? Isn't that true? You're in pursuit. And so you plan uh, you know, exotic dates and elaborate surprises. You spend money you don't have for things that she doesn't need, but you just want to make her happy. And you do all these things, and you talk on the phone too late at night, and you go for long walks, and all of this stoking, you do these things, stokes fires of passion. Now, what's sad is, many married couples after they get married, or I shouldn't say many, but some married couples after they finish the dating time, they put that stuff away because they think, well, that was just a phase. And it's just like a campfire. I mean, a campfire, you want to have a big, hot campfire, you stoke it with logs. You put logs on that fire, it stokes it big and hot. If you stop putting logs on the fire, the fire dwindles out. It just it does. It gets smaller and smaller, it loses heat. That hap- has happened in many marriages. And people think, well, I just didn't find my soulmate. Well, that is non-existent, first of all, my friend. If you don't put fire on, if you don't put wood on your fire, you don't say, well, I just didn't find my soul fire. Why did, my, why did the fire stop burning three hours? You know, well, three hours ago was the last time you put a log on. Well, I didn't find my soul fire. Well, you just didn't stoke it. Your marriage is dead and there's no romance because you haven't put any logs of romance or pursuit on that fire. So, of course, it got small. And the same thing is true. Jesus says to the Ephesians, uh, go back and do the things you did at first. Go back and stoke that thing. You stoked it. You had a fire of passionate love for me and I refuse to have a church that is just apathetic to me. I don't care how good the doctrine is. I don't care how good the service is. I don't care how good the teaching, how nice the building, what the missions program is or what the giving is. If there isn't passionate love for me, I'm not going to be there because that's the big thing for me. That's what it is. Go back and do the things you did at first. Now for years in my life, I just pounded my head against this wall Jesus, what were the things they were doing? You ever think about that when you read this passage? Oh, Jesus, why don't you just write down what it was they were doing? Like, what were the things you wanted them to do? Was it, did they have a Tuesday morning prayer meeting from four till seven? Done, we'll just put it on the schedule. They had, did they have prayer summits? Sure, yeah, okay, well, you guys better all come, okay? <laughs> just kidding. But what were the things? Did they have a month of prayer and fasting? Did they have all night worship services? What were the things they did at the beginning that Jesus said, I love that. And that's what I want you to go back. Don't change your feelings. Go back and do the things you did at first and the feelings of passion will also follow. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't tell us because he doesn't want to. It's like, you know, if I made a set of rules, this is how you passionately love your girlfriend. And every boyfriend had to follow Chris's list of how to be passionate for your girlfriend. It doesn't work. The whole point of being passionate for someone is you've got to be free to figure it out. Just do your best. Go over the top. Go nuts. Okay? That's what passion is. And you stoke that fire in every way you can, and you figure out what stokes the fire best for your, for your girlfriend or boyfriend. That's what it is. And for your spouse, for your husband or your wife. And so Jesus intentionally didn't put up there what the Ephesians had done because he doesn't want a bunch of people, robots, trying to check off a list of things they do because they're passionate for Jesus. But he says, repent and go back and do the things you did at first to stoke the fires of your love for me. Well, I want to finish this message with this. With a weekly challenge, as I always do, where's your love for Jesus at? This is not a condemning message. If you guys could just put that up there. I've got a few questions that I'll, I'll get you guys to work through there. Just go to the, right to the end, right to the, there we go. This is not a condemn- condemnation list. Some of you are going, I'm not, I'm not passionate for Jesus. I can't be passionate. 
And some of you have personalities that just passion and you somehow, something, something doesn't connect there. Like I have a, I have a brother-in-law, Travis, and if, he's, if he does this, you're like, whoa, that guy's excited. I mean, the rest of us lose our voices, you know, if our team completes a pass. He gives you a little smile if his team wins by 40 points, okay? It's just, that's just the way he is, okay? So this is not condemnation. This is not about personality styles. This is not about faking something or being wild. This isn't about focusing on our feelings. The feelings will come if you do the right things. And so this is not about guilt. I can't feel passion for Jesus. No, no. If you pursue him zealously, that's what he wants, Pursue him zealously and a zeal will come on your heart by the Holy Spirit and you can ask him for that. But Jesus is passionate. Let me tell you that Jesus is a passionate, zealous God. And he cannot abide apathy. It doesn't matter how good your doctrine is. It doesn't matter you know, what you know about him and how long you've been a Christian and how, what a nice person you are. If you just come to church every week and you just, that's it, you don't zealously pursue Jesus, he doesn't, that's not a relationship with him. He won't have it. And so this is not a condemnation list. This is a list of hope. We go home, we look at our lives, we say, Jesus, we talk in our churches so much about having a relationship with you and so often it's a head thing, it's a theoretical thing and we realize if we actually look closely at our lives, there's actually no relationship there. We're living off of, you know, my relationship or Pastor Ray's relationship or someone else's relationship at church and we go, amen, amen, preach it, brother. And then if we look at our lives, there's no relationship there. And this is just about going home and saying, Jesus, do I have a real walk with you? Am I actually pursuing you? And so some things you can ask yourself, where's your love for Jesus at? One question you can ask yourself this week is, when's the last time you joyfully gave something up for him? I'll tell you, when you were dating, I mean, unless you are just, why did your wife even marry you, okay? But when you were dating, I'll tell you something, you gave stuff up for your girlfriend, for your boyfriend, didn't you? Of course you did. I mean, like I said before, you did some dumb stuff while you were dating. You bought things you shouldn't have. You spent time you didn't have. You should have been studying for that exam. I, I, all these are, hello, amen, me. You, 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 you just did, you did silly things. Why? Because you, that you were stoking the fires of that love. When's the last time? Sure, you've been coming to church for 30 years and hearing lots of great messages and hearing great messages has made you feel like you have a great walk with God. But when's the last time you joyfully gave up something for him? You, you did something. It wasn't budgeted in. You were just overflowing out of your relationship with him and you said, Jesus, I want to make this sacrifice. I want to give so much that it hurts. And it could be a time thing, it could be a money thing. This is part of passionately pursuing him. How fresh is your walk with the Lord? How fresh is your walk with the Lord? We talk about having a relationship with God. Probably everybody here would say, I have a relationship with God. Okay, when's the last time he spoke to you? When's the last time? Can you think about it right now? When's the last time God spoke to you? don't ask me that. That has nothing to do with it. If you never talk to your wife, do you have a relationship with her? You never hear from her. I'm not saying that you have to hear from God every moment of every day, every single day. But when's the last time he spoke to you? Not to me. Not you heard about someone else at the prayer summit at church. He spoke to them. This is supposed to be for us. We're his followers. He loves us. When's the last time God spoke to you? Do you have a walk with him? When's the last time you actually had a bona fide answer to a specific prayer request you were praying? When's the last time? If I went up to each one of you here today and I said, I want you just off the top of your head, just tell me right now, when's the last time you prayed something, you needed God to do something, and he answered your prayer? Of course, we all would answer, God answers prayers. We all, and we talk to people, God answers prayers. Love it that God answers prayers. Look at all these verses in the Bible, God, God answering prayer. And when's the last time you answered one of your prayers? Uh, uh, um, I don't know. You want to know what the number one reason why Christians don't have answers to prayer? We don't have prayer requests we're praying about. Many people, if I would ask a lot of Christians today on the street, what are you praying about right now? Uh, what am I praying about? Well, of course I'm praying. Uh, praying that God would just move. He would move. 
Let me know when he answers that one. Many of us, you come to church, you hear me and Pastor Ray and other people here at church talking about answers to prayer, and you go home and you have this vague sense of guilt. Well, I don't feel, I don't, when's the last time you answered one of my prayers? You want to know why? We're not special. We're needy. We're like leeches on God. We have so many needs. Please help me, help me, help me. And I just have a list. That's how you get answers to prayer. Go home and figure out something that's wrong in your life and ask him to change it. And it starts there. That's how you get answers to prayer. You ask for things. You ask him to move. You ask him to speak to you. And if you never ask him for anything and you never hear him, why do we say we have a relationship with God? When's the last time the Lord touched you with his love and you sensed his presence? When's the last time you took a risk for Jesus? This is not condemnation. Far, far from it. This is not condemnation. This is Jesus inviting you. He's not telling you to try and be passionate. He's not, trying to t- he's not telling you to try to work up feelings. Go back and do the things you did at first. Stoke the fires. The feelings will follow. Stoke the fires of your love for Jesus. Have an actual relationship with him. Actually have prayer requests you ask. Actually hear his voice. Spend time with him. Seek him. That's what he's asking of us. One last thing to consider. This is not a rule. I'm not saying down any rules because this is a love thing. Jesus wants us to be passionate. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not telling you you should do this. I'm telling you, think about it this week as you go through these questions. I make sure that I have time with my wife. Every week, I have a couple evenings. After the kids are in bed, we just talk. It's time face to face. We just, we do it. And, and every month or two, we make sure we have a day-long date. That's what works for us. And we go away for a day from the kids and we just, we have supper and we, And why do I do this? Because I'm putting logs in the fire. I love her. I want to keep loving her. I don't have a relationship with her if I'm not putting logs on the fire. And I wonder if some of us need to start thinking about Jesus a little bit more that way. And I wonder if if, if we would just all consider even this this week. Jesus, monthly. What about monthly? If I set aside a bit of time, I called it a date, but I don't want to, it's not like dating God. I don't want to get too, you know, He's holy and he's awesome, but I just use that terminology because of the analogy with the husband and the wife, but consider this this year. Look at your month and say, do I want to take a couple of days every month, one day, two days, three days, whatever it is, and I'm going to, during that time, I'm going to fast from media. I'm going to fast maybe from food, whatever it is, and every month, I'm going to have a couple of days where I just seek after God. Go back and do the things he did at first. You can make choices this week to do the things that will stoke a fire in you of a real relationship. And God will be pleased. Ushers, if you would come up, we've got the baptisms coming up right away. I just want to pray for you. If you are one of those people here and the Holy Spirit is, something's happening in your heart that you're hungry to have a real relationship yourself, not just to talk about it, not just a cliche, but you want to have it. I'd encourage you, just put your hands out in front of you. And, and don't do this because you have to. Some of you are just grouchy. Don't worry about it. Don't put your hands out. Who knows what God will put in there if you're grouchy and you put them out. <laughs> but if you want, if there's something inside of you, say, I want a real relationship with Jesus. I want to touch him. I want to have my own adventure stories. I want to have my own answers to prayer, not be living off of someone else's, and I want to really love him and pursue him this, this year. And put your hands on. I just want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're good. You do not condemn us here this morning. You invite us into a wonderful, real, alive relationship with you. For every person in here today that hungers for a real relationship with you, Holy Spirit, I pray that a change would come over our hearts today, that your Holy Spirit would come into fellowship with us, it would begin to be a real relationship with us, that we would hear your voice, that we would start to have prayer requests, we would start to see you answer them, we would start to have an adventure with you that is all our own, and that we would do these things It's not complicated that as we do these things, simple things, you would stoke the fires of passion in our hearts and be pleased with our efforts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.